Section 8 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Lord Falkland, A Moderate and Liberal Church, Part 4. A crowd of stirring political events now rapidly succeeded each other. The debates on the Grand Remonstrance, the attempt of Charles to arrest the five members, the retirement of the court from London, the assumption of military powers by Parliament, and, finally, the raising of the royal standard at Nottingham, 23rd of August, 1642. Falkland had plainly drawn himself off from the extreme party during the summer of 1641, and when the attempt was renewed, which had been unsuccessfully made at an earlier stage, of attaching certain of the parliamentary leaders to the king's service as ministers, he was at length induced to accept the office of Secretary of State, along with Culpepper as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Clarendon has told all the story of his hesitation, and yet his ultimate acceptance. Quote, no man could be more surprised than he was when the first intimation was made to him of the king's purpose. He had never proposed any such thing to himself, nor had any veneration for the court, but only such a loyalty to the king as the law required from him. Close quote. Whatever we may think of Falkland's judgment in accepting office in the circumstances, with his obvious distrust of the king's character, and the evident dislike which existed betwixt him and that inner circle of counsellors, with the queen at their head, who guided Charles far more than any minister, it is impossible to doubt the purity of the patriotism which animated him now, as in all preceding stages of his career. The study of his character and speeches reveals his deep devotion to the English constitution, both in church and state. With all his love of liberty, religious and political, he had a genuine enthusiasm for the church and for royalty. For Charles himself he may have had little affection or esteem. He dreaded the demands which a character like his was sure to make upon a minister. He feared, quote, lest the king should expect such a submission and resignation of himself and his own reason and judgment to his commands as he should never give or pretend to give. Withal, he was ardently loyal. His attachment was to a principle and not to a man, and he allowed all his personal scruples to be overcome by the enthusiasm of his belief in the reconciliation of royalty and constitutional government, of church order and religious freedom. It has been lately insinuated, notwithstanding Clarendon's express assertions to the contrary, that Falkland, along with Hyde himself and Culpepper, were privy to Charles's attempt to arrest the five members. But there is really not a tittle of evidence in favor of this suggestion, which is at the same time opposed to all we know of Falkland's character, his transparent truthfulness and hatred of rash and crooked courses, features so transparent in all his career that Mr. Forster himself admits he could as easily have given himself to steal as to dissemble. We cannot, therefore, conceive him entering upon office with such a stain of evil secrecy in his mind, or such a purpose of ill-concerted vengeance towards men with whom he had been lately acting. To some it may be equally difficult to conceive his going on after the event with the negotiations which were then in progress, and accepting office at all in the circumstances. But there is all the difference in the two cases betwixt a man, it may be unwisely impelled by a sense of duty to enter the service of his sovereign for the sake of his country, and a man clearly committing himself from the first to a course which neither patriotic nor moral judgment can approve. The gravest doubts may be raised as to the wisdom of Falkland's policy in identifying himself with a cause which, however great and beautiful it appeared in his own eyes, was in hopeless and impracticable hands, in hands with many of whose doings he could have no sympathy. It must have been a bitter humiliation to him on many occasions to find himself associated with the Digmies and the Germans, and the general crew of ultra-royalists which gathered around the royal standard. 
It may also be true that he had misgivings as to his position from first to last, that there were even points on which his heart was as much with the Parliament as with the King, for he was a man of infinite self-questionings. But it is impossible to doubt that he had chosen what appeared to him to be the right side in a great crisis, in which he felt he could not stand aloof or fail in service to his country. The result was not what he expected, and he soon began to despair. He had hoped to conciliate opinions, and they grew every month more irreconcilable. To mitigate party feeling, and the exasperation between the Parliament and the King every day increased. And when civil war became inevitable, and blood was shed on both sides, his heartbreak proved intolerable. He lacked the firmness or coarseness of fibre which gathers strength in the face of opposition, and rises in proud defiance to meet menace with menace. From the entrance into this unnatural war, says Clarendon, quote, his natural cheerfulness and vivacity grew clouded, and a kind of sadness and dejection of spirit stole upon him, which he had never been used to. Close quote. And even after hostilities had begun, he hoped and hoped that peace would ensue after a decisive trial of strength. When this hope perished, and negotiations with the Parliament seemed finally broken off, quote, those indispositions which had before touched him grew into a perfect habit of uncheerfulness and he who had been so exactly easy and affable to all men that his face and countenance were always present and vacant to his company and held any cloudiness and less pleasantness of the visage a kind of rudeness or incivility became on a sudden less communicable and thence very sad pale and exceedingly affected with the spleen in his clothes and habit which he had minded before always with more neatness and industry and expense than is usual to so great a soul he was not now only incurious but too negligent and in his reception of suitors, and the necessary or casual addresses to his place, so quick and sharp and severe that there wanted not some men, strangers to his nature and disposition, who believed him proud and imperious, from which no mortal man was ever more free. When there was any overture or hope of peace, he would be more erect and vigorous, and exceedingly solicitous to press anything which he thought might promote it. And sitting among his friends, often, after a deep silence and frequent sighs, would, with a shrill and sad accent, ingeminate the word, Peace, peace, and would passionately profess that the very agony of the war and the view of the calamities and desolation the kingdom did and must endure took his sleep from him and would shortly break his heart. Close quote. To those disposed to idealize the one party or the other, Falkland's attitude may not appear magnanimous, but to others, looking below the surface to the real horrors of the fratricidal war in which parliamentarians and royalists were engaged, and to the blows inflicted upon liberty, civil and religious, by the exasperated passions of both sides, there may be pardoned some feeling, not only of pathos, but of enthusiasm, for this martyr of moderation. Moderation may have its heroes, surely, as well as fanaticism, and if Pym's political daring and Cromwell's rude and powerful genius claim our admiration, we may reserve some share of it for one inferior to both in statecraft and firmness of purpose but greatly their superior in elevation of personal character and range of intellectual and spiritual thoughtfulness the drooping figure of falkland may seem weak as he sits in geminating peace peace but all the while his heart was well-nigh broken by the calamities he could not avert his intellect was cool and luminous in counsel and his spirit courageous to recklessness in the hour of danger we cannot think less of a man that his patriotism was tender as well as intrepid, and that he mourned for a broken ideal of order and peace which his higher intelligence assured him could never come from the excesses of either side. Of the cause which he thus nobly but sadly served, Falkland was destined soon to be the victim. The war was begun on the 23rd of August in 1642. 
in the september of the following year after varying alternations of success and defeat the parliamentary forces moved to the relief of gloucester which had been invested by the royalists and the siege of which is memorable to us in connection with chillingworth's attempts at engineering having succeeded in raising the siege the earl of essex gradually advanced to newbury where the royalist forces had already established themselves two hours before his arrival falkland accompanied the king on his march from gloucester but hyde was detained at bristol from thence he is found remonstrating with his friend for the indiscreet manner in which he had been exposing himself to danger it was not hyde said quote, the office of a privy councillor and a secretary of state to visit the trenches as he usually did and conjured him out of the conscience of his duty to the king and to free his friends from those continual uneasy apprehensions not to engage his person to those dangers which were not incumbent to him falkland replied that as the trenches were at an end there would be no further danger there but quote, that his case was different from other men's that he was so much taken notice of for an impatient desire of peace that it was necessary that he should likewise make it appear that it was not out of fear of the utmost hazard of war he was evidently sensitive that his personal courage should be suspected in his eagerness for peace and this may have given a touch of recklessness to his gallantry which had been conspicuous throughout on the morning of the battle there are different accounts of his bearing a well-known story is told by whitelock of his having called for a clean shirt saying that if he were slain he should not be found in foul linen and further that he was weary of the times and foresaw much misery to his own country and did believe he should be out of it ere night clarendon on the other hand who was much more likely to have been well informed says that he was very cheerful as he usually was in the prospect of action he put himself at the head of sir john byron's regiment and as he was advancing to the charge of a body of foot the hedges on both sides being lined by the enemy's musketeers he fell mortally wounded by a musket shot his body was not found till next morning and having been transferred to great tew was so hastily interred that its exact resting-place remains unknown thus perished in his thirty-fourth year one who seemed to many in his age incomparable both for his virtues and his talents for many days hyde was so absorbed in grief for the loss of his dear friend his sweetheart as falkland had affectionately addressed him that he was unable to attend to any business and long afterwards when twenty-six years of an eventful life had passed he felt that time had in no degree effaced the love and grief with which he cherished the image of his friend i had with him he said to his children in his will a most perfect and blameless friendship it could only have been some rare charm of character which thus fixed so much love and admiration which not only drew forth encomiums from poetic friends and the applause of literary and theological associates but the memory of which melted to tenderness the hearts of two such men as clarendon and chillingworth like his friends hales and godolphin falkland was of low stature a little man with no great strength of body blackish hair something flaggy and i think his eyes black such is aubrey's portrait and clarendon's account confirms the impression that falkland was not in any degree indebted for his remarkable influence to external attractions his motion was ungraceful his voice untuned and his aspect so far from inviting that it had somewhat in it of simplicity quote, sure no man was less beholden to nature for its recommendation into the world but then no man sooner or more disappointed this general and customary prejudice Close quote. but his little person was quickly found to contain a great heart and a fearless nature his untuned voice to be the organ of an understanding and wit so excellent as to need no ornament of delivery while his disposition quote, was so gentle and obliging so much delighted in courtesy kindness and generosity 
that all mankind could not but admire and love him. Close quote. It now only remains to estimate more distinctly the significance of Falcon's position as the head of the moderate or rational party in the Church of England at the outbreak of the Civil War. We have already quoted at length his views concerning episcopacy. He believed in its antiquity and utility as an order of church government. He proved its ardent supporter in the hour of trial, and earnestly repudiated the attempts to subvert it. But his defense of episcopacy was the defense of an ancient Christian institution, and not of an exclusive divine system. His own studies had convinced him that the order of bishops was coeval with the organization of the Christian church. It had lasted, as he said, these sixteen hundred years, and it was contrary to all his instincts as a student and a statesman to change in an instant the whole face of the church like the scene of a mask. But in the very same breath in which he advocated this rational conservatism, he repudiated with a terse emphasis, which may bear to be repeated, the eustavinum of bishops. Mr. Speaker, he said, I do not believe them to be jure divino, nay, I believe them not to be jure divino. In short, while vindicating the Reformed Church of England, he rejected on its behalf not only the arbitrary impositions of the Laudian bishops, but all sacerdotal pretensions and all idea of radical distinction betwixt it and the other churches of the Reformation. It was one of his express charges against Laud and his coadjutors that they had, quote, slackened the strictness of that union which was formerly between us and those of our religion beyond the sea, an action as impolitic as ungodly. The same enlightened principles which guided his attitude towards episcopacy appear in his estimate of other forms of church government. He objected to the Scotch ecclesiastical government, not because it was Presbyterian, but because of its jure divino pretensions and arbitrary interferences with social manners and the course of civil government. He recognized in its advocates the same desire of uniformity which in the Laudian bishops had led to such disastrous results, the destruction of unity, as he said, under pretense of uniformity. He saw the intolerance which lay beneath the aggressive Puritanism of the time, and reprobated it as strongly as he had done the aggressions of Anglicanism. It appeared to him worse than the jure divino pretensions of some bishops, because more likely to be believed by the people. This is very much the strain of his second speech concerning episcopacy, in which he points out the inconveniences of abolishing, without any satisfactory substitute, a form of government which hath very well agreed with the constitution of our laws, with the disposition of our people, and under which we have lived long happily and gloriously. The conclusion of this speech is less pointed and eloquent than that of the former, but scarcely less significant of his position as a liberal churchman. For us, he says, quote, to bring in any unlimited, any independent authority, the first is against the liberty of the subject, the second against the right and privilege of Parliament, and both against the protestation. If it be said that this unlimitedness and independence is only in spiritual things, I answer first that arbitrary government being the worst of governments, and our bodies being worse than our souls, it will be strange to set up that over the second, of which we were so impatient over the first. Secondly, that Monsieur Solicitor, speaking about the power of the clergy to make canons to bind, did excellently inform us what a mighty influence spiritual power hath upon temporal affairs, so that if our clergy had the one, they had inclusively almost all the other. And to this I may add, what all men may see, the vast temporal power of the Pope allowed him by such who allowed him only in ordine ad spiritualia, for the fable will tell you if you make the lion judge, and the clergy assisted by the people is lion enough, it was a wise fear of the foxes, lest he might call a nub a horn. And sure, sir, they will in this case be judges, not only of that which is spiritual, but of what it is that is so, 
and the people receiving instruction from no other will take the most temporal matter to be spiritual if they tell them it is so his discourse on the infallibility of the church of rome explains most clearly and fully his religious position in this brief discourse and in his more lengthened reply to the answer thereto we see how vital was his interest in religious questions and especially in the great question of religious certitude or authority which invariably in a time of spiritual excitement comes to the front he had a special interest in the question like his friend chillingworth on account of the insidious activity of the jesuit missionaries but his thoughts naturally ran in the same direction the necessity of looking into the whole subject for himself was one of the special reasons which led to his retirement to tew and the theological reunions which he encouraged there for in religion he thought too careful and too curious an inquiry could not be made above all others this was the intellectual interest which united him with chillingworth and in the discussion of which they both sharpened their reasoning faculties a good deal in the general argument of the discourse reminds us of the religion of protestants there are passages and especially turns of reasoning which are a distinct echo of its great author we seem almost to catch his voice but there does not seem after all on the one side or the other any formal traces of indebtedness with a common tone of argument the individuality of each writer is sufficiently manifest footnote falkland and chillingworth and hales are supposed to have been indebted in their revolt against church authority to Dyer's well-known treatise concerning the right use of the fathers published in sixteen twenty eight there can be no doubt that falkland greatly admired Dyer's book and partly translated it although the papers were on this translation was half finished were long since lost even in sixteen fifty one but beyond a certain tone of speaking as to the inconsistencies of patristic tradition and the difficulty of finding its meaning there is no evidence of his having made much use of it and none at all of his having borrowed from it Dyer's treatise we can imagine was a welcome assistance to both chillingworth and falkland in their researches but the value of their writings is quite independent of any assistance which it could have given them in hales we have not found any trace of indebtedness to Dyer. End of footnote the position of the church of rome is clearly stated in the outset this church defends herself against all allegations of error by saying that she cannot err she has no errors because she never can have any she appeals in short to her infallibility but this as falkland points out is the very point to be proved and so much harder is it to be believed than the first that it needs more certain proof a claim to infallibility can never be accepted on its own authority it must be vindicated on the clearest and most indubitable grounds and so under pretense of escaping argument as to religious truth we end in an infinite regression of argument we can never get out of the shadow of our own reason nor rest on any surer grounds than those of rational conviction in some form or another we can never infallibly know that the church is infallible and if romanists say quote, that an argument out of scripture is sufficient ground of divine faith why are they offended with the protestants for believing every part of their religion upon that ground upon which they build all theirs at once and if following the same rule with equal desire of finding the truth by it having neither of those qualities which isidorus of pelusium a christian writer of the fifth century saith are the cause of all heresy pride and prejudication why should god be more offended with the one than with the other though they chance to err Close quote. the alleged ground of infallibility is the necessity of some certain guide in religious matters but supposing such a guide to exist of what use is it unless it be plainly manifest an infallible church which does not plainly appear to be so is as if god quote, were to set a ladder to heaven and seem to have a great care of my going up 
whereas unless there be care taken that I may know this ladder is here to that purpose, it were as good for me it never had been set. Close quote. And what, he asks, is to be made of the case in which the Church of Rome contradicts herself? Here, surely, the principle of infallibility plainly breaks down. Quote, for to say, I am to believe the present Church, that it differs not from the former, though it seemed to me to do so, is to send me to a witness, and bid me not believe it. Close quote. This suggests to him the further question, which is the Church? Supposing the idea of infallibility granted, all that this imports is, that God will have a church always which shall not err, but not that such and such a succession shall be in the right. The Greek church may be the true church, or it may have been the church, although it has now fallen into error. To maintain the church of Rome to be the true church, because its opinions are more consonant to scripture or antiquity, is to, quote, run into a circle, proving the Romanist tenets to be true, first because the church holds them, and then theirs to be the church because the church holds the truth which last, though it appears to me the only way, yet it takes away its being a guide which we may follow without examination, without which all they say besides is nothing. This necessity for examination brings him back to the centre of the subject. The right of private judgment or examination is repudiated by the Romanists, because when differences arise as to the meaning of Scripture, there is no way, as they say, to end them. But whereas the assumption of infallibility itself is no security against difference of opinion, as Falkland shows by various instances of such difference in the Church of Rome, the only reasonable inference to be drawn from the fact of such difference is that it is not hurtful in itself nor displeasing to God. Where God has not clearly and indubitably revealed his will, it will not stand with his goodness to damn man for not following it. To those, quote, who follow their reason in the interpretation of the scriptures, God will either give his grace for assistance to find the truth, or his pardon if they miss it. And then this supposed necessity of an infallible guide, with the supposed damnation for the want of it, fall together to the ground. These words, in their trenchant force and magnanimous confidence, closely resemble those of Chillingworth, and there is a good deal of the same hunting of the adverse argument from point to point in which this great writer delights, leaving no loophole of escape and no ground on which to rest. The idea of infallibility is looked at in every aspect, and its futility exposed unsparingly, though without much logical arrangement or clear advance of reasoning. There is a lack of definite arrangement, and we find ourselves frequently returning upon the same path. As a whole, however, the subject is well conceived, and its handling worthy of Falkland's argumentative ability and fairness and vigor of mind, while it shows throughout a firm grasp of the rational principles lying at the basis of Protestantism or any form of intelligent religious faith. The details of the treatise, from its want of connection, do not readily fall into order. It is enough to indicate its main ideas, and to quote such passages as may throw an additional light on the thought and position of the writer. Having shown, first, that infallibility itself must be proved before it can be erected into a principle of religious authority, and, secondly, that it must be located, or, in other words, proved to belong to, the Church of Rome and no other church, in all the steps of which proof there may be uncertainty and mistake, he proceeds to point out that even admitting these two points, the principle is, after all, of no practical utility. For every Christian, in the end, must rest on his own understanding of the supposed infallible dogma or decree. Let the voice of the church be ever so authoritative, it can only reach me through my intelligence, and after all I may misunderstand it. Of its sense I can have no better expounder than my reason, and should I fail with all my efforts to understand it, surely I shall not be damned for my failure? Why then, quote, shall I, for mistaking the sense of the scripture, or why am I a less fit interpreter of the one than of the other? 
of the bible than of the church and when both seem equally clear and yet contradictory shall not i as soon believe scripture which is without doubt as of great authority falkland enters into many special questions with the church of rome particularly in his reply but his argument mainly interests us and is in itself most luminous and interesting where it keeps the level of general principles or deals with his own personal convictions extended footnote falkland's reply is considerably longer than his original essay but it is mainly an expansion of its general line of thought the answer to which he replied is said to have been written by a roman catholic priest of the name of holland who had been a cambridge student it is distinguished by great courtesy of tone towards falkland and is well and temperately written but not otherwise remarkable the discourse with answer and his lordship's reply are all found in a single volume which seems at first to have been published in sixteen fifty one and afterwards in sixteen sixty with one of falkland's speeches on episcopacy prefixed the volume is edited by a dr thomas triplet who appears to have been tutored to falkland's son henry and who says in an introductory letter of dedication addressed to his pupil that he had received the manuscripts not long before her death from lady falkland triplet afterwards became a prebendary of westminster and is said to have been a man of great wit and a great companion of lord falkland henry the third lord falkland was a man of considerable distinction no less than his father and grandfather he inherited apparently their literary ability without the earnestness of character that might have been supposed due to him both from father and mother a good story is told of him by walpole in royal and noble authors five one twenty one that quote, being brought early into the house of commons and a grave senator objecting to his youth and to his not looking as if he had sowed his wild oats he replied with great quickness then i am come to the properest place where are so many geese to pick them up he wrote walpole adds the marriage night a comedy henry was the second son the eldest lorenzo having died in youth to the great grief of his mother End of footnote like his friend chillingworth he kindles into indignation at the idea of persecution for religious opinions dogmatic differences however vital can never justify intolerance he refers to constantine's famous letter on the trinitarian controversy as showing that even on a question so great as this neither side was deemed without the pale of the church punishing for opinions was entirely foreign to the best ages of christianity and was in fact a mark to know false opinions by and i believe he adds quote, throughout antiquity you will find no putting any to death unless it be such as begin to kill first as the circumcellions or such like i am sure the christian religion's chiefest glory is that it increaseth by being persecuted and having that advantage of the mohammedan methinks it should be to take ill care of christianity to hold it up by turkish means at least it must breed doubts that if the religion had always remained the same it would not now be defended by ways so contrary to those by which at first it was propagated I desire recrimination may not be used for though it be true that calvin had done it and the church of england a little which is a little too much yet she confessing she may err is not so chargeable with any fault as those which pretend they cannot and so will be sure never to mend it i confess this opinion of damning so many and this custom of burning so many this breeding up of those who knew nothing else in any point of religion yet to be in a readiness to cry to the fire with him to hell with him these, I say, were chiefly the causes which made so many so suddenly leave the Church of Rome. The right of rational inquiry appears to him more sacred and truly religious than any blind faith whatsoever. Grant the Church, he says, quote, to be infallible, yet methinks he that denies it, and employs his reason to seek if it be true, should be in as good case as he that believeth it, and searcheth not at all the truth of the proposition he receives. 
for i cannot see why he should be saved because by reason of his parents belief or the religion of the country or some such accident the truth was offered to his understanding when had the contrary been offered he would have received that and the other damned that believes falsehood upon as good ground as the other doth truth unless the church be like a conjurer's circle that will keep a man from the devil though he came into it by chance they grant no man is an heretic that believes not his heresy obstinately and if he be no heretic he may sure be saved it is not then certain damnation for any man to deny the infallibility of the church of rome but for him only that denies it obstinately and then i am safe for i am sure i do not neither can they say i shall be damned for schism though not for heresy for he is as well no schismatic though in schism that is willing to join in communion with the true church when it appears to be so to him as he is no heretic though he holds heretical opinions who holds them not obstinately that is as i suppose with a desire to be informed if he be in the wrong i have the less doubt of this opinion that i shall have no harm for not believing the infallibility of the church of rome because of my being so far from leaning to the contrary and so suffering my will to have power over my understanding that if god would leave it to me which tenet should be true i would rather choose that that should than the contrary for they may well believe me that i take no pleasure in tumbling hard and unpleasant books and making myself giddy with disputing obscure questions to believe he continues that there must always be quote, a society of men whom i might always know whose opinions must be certainly true is a more agreeable way than to endure endless volumes of commenters the harsh greek of epiphanius and the harder latin of Irenaeus. to the objection that it is mere pride of reason that is at the bottom of all doubts about the church's infallibility he retorts that too much impatience and laziness of examining is the cause that many do not doubt it what pride he says can there be in desiring to have a rational foundation for belief since even the infallibilist must pretend to some reason for his position and that the writer himself is willing to be led wherever truth may lead him remembering that truth in likelihood is where her author god was in the still voice and not the loud wind his mind he professes is open to every reasonable influence prayer as well as argument he would neither be willfully blind nor deny impudently what he sees but save reason herself he can imagine no ultimate guide to the truth every intelligence in the end must incline to the side of the greater reason Quote, for to be persuaded by reason that to such an authority i ought to submit it is still to follow reason and not to quit her and by what else is it that you examine what the apostles taught when you examine that by ancient tradition and ancient tradition by a present testimony yet when i speak thus of finding the truth by reason i intend not to exclude the grace of god which i doubt not for as much as is necessary to salvation is ready to concur to our instruction as the sun is to our sight if we by a wilful winking choose not to make not it but ourselves guilty of our blindness yet when i speak of god's grace i mean not that it infuseth the knowledge without reason but works by it as by its minister and dispels those mists of passions which do wrap up truth from our understandings for if you speak of its instructing any other way you leave visible arguments to fly to invisible and your adversary when he hath found your play will be soon at the same lock and i believe in this sense infused faith is but the same thing otherwise apparelled which you have so often laughed at in the puritans under the title of private spirit these quotations are enough to indicate falcon's religious attitude and to show what claims he had apart from his mere social and political position to lead the group of rational thinkers who amidst the conflicts of the seventeenth century sought to take a middle course and to fix the minds of their countrymen upon a broader and more tolerant view both of the church and of christianity 
it is evident that falkland added to his general intellectual accomplishments and political sagacity a deep and serious interest in the religious questions which really lay at the root of all the national difficulties of his time he had pondered these questions thoughtfully and worked out for himself clear and definite conclusions in favor at once of religious liberty and the national church while professedly arguing against the infallibility of the church of rome his argument is equally valid against the prolatic sacerdotalism which had more or less oppressed england since the accession of the stuarts and the puritan dogmatism which sought to take its place his plea against infallibility is really a plea in favor of freedom of religious opinion in a sense which neither prelatist nor puritan in the seventeenth century understood it seemed to him then as it has seemed to many since possible to make room within the national church for wide differences of dogmatic opinion or in other words for the free rights of the christian reason incessantly pursuing its inquest after truth and moulding the national consciousness to higher conceptions of religious thought and duty the frame of the church of england was admirably suited for such a purpose as linking together in its catholic order the christian ages and being in itself both apostolic and rational he would have reformed but preserved and purified it as the flexible and appropriate vehicle of the nation's religious progress this was the conservative side of his thought where he separated entirely from the root and branch men on the principle succinctly expressed by him that where it is not necessary to change it is necessary not to change his mind like all higher minds sought not so much outward as inward change he shrank from revolution in church or state but he would have liberalized both in a truer and nobler sense than his contemporary revolutionists ecclesiastical or political his ideas were born out of due time and the extremes first of destruction and then of reaction were destined to run their course in all times of excitement this is more or less likely to be the case the voice of reason is unheard amongst the clamours of party and a falkland dies broken-hearted when a cromwell and a clarendon take their turn of success but the seed of wise thought never perishes and falkland's ideal of the church no less than of the state may yet be realized when bigotries christian and anti-christian have more thoroughly consumed themselves in their internecine heat and men have learned that the patient search for truth is better than all dogmas and that the charity that thinketh no evil and rejoiceth in the truth is a higher christian gain than the most definite opinions or even the faith that could remove mountains End of chapter three part four